Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I don't know. I tell you, this may be too loud. Am I too loud? Okay. Because uh, I, <laughs> I don't have a soft voice. So... Uh, what I'm going to be doing is a workshop on emotional sobriety. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little background of how this started. Well, first let me say this. I'm probably going to talk for approximately two hours. And if you get tired or you're done before I'm done, you just feel free because I'm not going to break or any of that kind of stuff. And I may not go a whole two hours, but it'll be somewhere in there, okay? And if you're not wanting to sit that long, you know, you're not going to hurt my feelings, so don't feel bad if you need to get up and move or whatever you need to do. You just go ahead and do it. Um, I'm just going to kind of tell you how this workshop began. I've been doing this workshop since 1990. In 1989... I spoke uh, in Winnipeg, and they gave me the book, Language of the Heart. And I picked up that book, since they were so kind to give it to me, I picked up that book and read it. And it's a fabulous book. If you're not familiar with Language of the Heart, it's uh, Bill W.'s Writings to the Grapevine. And uh, in there caught my eye. Because I am a person who has suffered depression in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have had severe depression. I am a person, last night when I gave my AA talk, I only talked about one suicide attempt, and I talked about cutting. I am, I have, I'm here behind a lot of suicide attempts and a lot of cutting. I have had severe depression. Now, I'm here to tell you today that I live a fabulous life on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I know without a doubt who the person, I know there's that person still there. Without the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 traditions, the concepts, and the fellowship and a loving God, I will be that person again. That's who I am. And I feel like that when I picked up that book, I was 12 years sober. And I still, there was no thoughts of drinking, but suicide was still an option. And I was 12 years sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I picked up a book, everything I'd get that I, you know, that I'd read on Bill W. because he had such severe depressions. Well, when I picked up that book on page 258, it says, Our New Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. And in squiggly letters, it says that this is a writing that Bill W. wrote to a friend who also suffered severe depression. And it caught my eye. And I want you to know that from that day forward, 
I have had a brand new life because of that article. And when, when I was asked to do a retreat, well, I didn't think I was asked to do a retreat, but in 1990, I was asked to go to Eugene, Oregon to do, to talk at a women's, uh, at a women's conference, I thought. And I thought it was just me to go there and give my AA talk or whatever. And a few months before uh, I was supposed to go, this lady calls me and she says, what are you going to give the retreat on? And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> and they, she said, oh, well, you, I said, I don't know what you mean. And she says, well, you're doing the whole weekend, just me. And I said, well, I can't do that. I've never done that. And she said, well, just do it on whatever you feel like you need to do. So, of course, I thought, you know, figured I'd do it on the steps or the big book. And all of a sudden, it just kept, the emotional sobriety thing just kept coming, and Bill's writings just kept coming to me. And I ended up calling my Al-Anon sponsor, and she says, well, I think a lady down in Brownwood did that. And then I talked to Dottie, who's my AA sponsor, and pretty soon, before I knew it, I had people had handed me materials. It's amazing how God works. You know, just all of a sudden, I had different things, that, and, you know, and I had something that I could start to formulate some ideas. And, uh, and that's how this workshop has come to pass. And I've been doing it now since 1990, so 17 years I've been doing this <laughs> workshop. And, uh, and it's still an important workshop to me. Now, today, I am going to read, I'm going to just kind of hit the highlights of this article. But because it's a whole lot easier to carry, the grapevine has come out with a book called Emotional Sobriety. And it's, it's fabulous. Robert has it out there. And this is the article. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the squiggly line. It does say January 1958 on it. But it doesn't have the squiggly line that it does in Language of the Heart. But what I'd like to do is just kind of hit the highlights to just so that you'll know that it's Bill's writing and not all me, okay? Before I start the workshop, Emotional Sobriety. And you can see what I saw when I read it. And it took, it's like for me, it's like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you guys may be a lot brighter than me, because I've not always been the brightest bulb in the drawer. But, you know, the thing about it is, is that I have to read things over and over and over, and then pretty soon I kind of understand what I'm, what I'm reading. That's what I've had to do with the big book. When I first read the big book, it didn't make any sense to me. And uh, I kept reading this because there was a few things here that caught my eye. And as I, and the more I got into it, the more I understood more and more. So, this is Bill's writing. And I'm going to comment, and remember anything I comment on is me. Anything else I do is, is going to be Bill. And that's going to be the same thing. As I go through this workshop, I like to refer to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 and 12, as Bill sees it, and the ODAT. You alcoholics know what the ODAT is? Yeah. Okay, the one day at a time book that Al-Anon reads. So that's going to, all of that, that's my, that's where I work from. I, I always, in a workshop, 
do my, well, I, I do, refer to AA-approved literature because this is, this is the fellowship. So I like to stay with AA-approved literature. Okay, the next frontier, emotional sobriety. Bill wrote this in January 1958. I think that many oldsters who have put our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests still find they often lack emotional sobriety. January 1958, Bill is coming up on his 24th year of sobriety. Okay, this is not, he is not a newcomer. All right? So he's talking having had some sobriety. <clears throat> Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility in our relationships with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. And, you know, I didn't know that maturity and balance could be used in the same sentence. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. I don't have a clue what balance is. I just sitting here talking to Dick just a few minutes ago. And as I, I try to balance and get my life in some kind of order, and we talk about it in the family afterwards, how we have to balance our lives so we can give our families time and our jobs time and this time. I don't know anything about balance. Because I do things like a kid. I do too much of this, too much of that, too much of this, and I leave out all the wrong stuff. So I've had to learn. And, you know, I hope you learn it before me. I'm 66 years old, and I still haven't got it. I mean, everybody's always saying, I think I thought you were going to cut back. I thought you were not going to do so much. And I'm like, I just don't know how to, to do it. I don't know how to make, I don't know how to make it work. And so what I end up doing, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, I end up having a life that it's like keeping balls up in the air, up in the air, you know, and trying to make, trying to get it all done. So I don't know about that. So, you know, here I am, it's, you know, it's 66 years old and he's going to talk about that and I don't have any real maturity and I don't know if I ever will. So <laughs> anyway, there, there you go. So here he says, those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17, <laughs> prove to be an impossible way of life if we are age 47 or 57 or 67. So... You know, it's, it's, all of this is, you know, starting to grab me. Since AA began, I have taken immense wallops in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. You know, I don't know about any of you, but a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago, back in the 80s, my husband and I decided that we'd go looking for our inner child. I don't know if any of you <laughs> have gone looking for your inner child, but we decided we'd go looking for our inner child. And what we walked out of finally realizing is, is that we don't need to find our inner child. 
that. Everything we do is like a child. What we, what we are in desperate need of is to find an inner adult. Because I have have a temper tantrum like a child. I know how to behave like a child. What I am desperately trying to learn how to do is be a grown-up. Just be a grown-up. And uh, that's been a very, you know, somebody once said, you know, I may not have had a very good, a very good childhood, but it has really been long. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so that's kind of the way it is. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how painful to discover finally that all along we had the cart before the horse. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional roller coaster or merry-go-round. Have you ever, you know, have you ever just... I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. And we just keep on. You know, we just keep on. Whoever said alcoholics don't have willpower? <laughs> I mean, we can we can hang in there and kick that old horse so he can't get up ever again. <clears throat> How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result and so into easy, happy, and good living well, that's not only the neurotic's problem, it's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew into right principles into all our affairs. I want to do this. I want to take those 12 principles and I want to apply them in all my affairs. And sometimes the place that I lack the most and I lack being principled is within my family. That's where, that's the people who pay the highest price. My oldest son is 47 years old, and he can't stand AA. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't care that AA has saved my life. He, it's not about me. What he cares about is, okay, so you were a drunk and passed out all the time. Now you're sober and gone all the time. To him, it doesn't make any difference. He didn't get anything. To him, he doesn't see any difference. And he's 47. So I never, I didn't get it, see, when I first got sober. And sometimes I feel like that's a huge challenge for all of us sponsors, is to make sure that we sponsor young women with children so they can get to meetings, but they can also remain parents. It's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge for us all. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Even then, as we work away, peace and joy will still elude us. That's the place so many of us AAA olders has, oldsters have come to, and it's a hell of a spot. Literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Now, I don't know about you, but I am 30 years sober, 
and my head is still not my friend. It is not my friend. I need meetings today as much as I have ever needed them, if not more, because I am that, because the further I get away from a drink, the closer I get to a drink. I need this program desperately. I am watching people with my length of sobriety fall all the time. It's important that I stay here because I have those fears and compulsions and phony aspirations. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. And this is where he got me. Last fall, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. And this was what was going on with me. I would sit around and say, I have the man of my dreams. I have, every, I have Alcoholics Anonymous. My son is sober. My oldest son has quit trying to kill himself. I had everything I could possibly imagine in my life, and I was still depressed. And I couldn't understand. Why? What's the problem? What, what's going on here? I don't get it. I began to be scared that I was in for another chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with the depression, it was not a bright prospect. If you were a person sitting here and who have never had depression, oh, praise the Lord. I hope you never do. But if you do know about depression, then you know what I'm talking about. And it is a very black, dark place. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right, but why didn't it work? I suddenly realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence. Almost absolute dependence on people, on circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them, and when defeat came, so did my depression. I did not realize that I had been dependent on everything but God. I had been dependent on sponsors, I had been dependent on the fellowship. I had been dependent on men. I had been totally and completely dependent. And when you did not perform how I thought you should perform, I sank into the mire of depression. I did not understand that until I read this. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I've had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. 
Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA indeed, upon any set of circumstances whatsoever. Then only could I be free to love as Francis had, emotionally and instinctually satisfact and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividend of having love, offering love, and expressing love appropriate to every relationship of life. Plainly, I could not avail myself of God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly, possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. Now, the article goes on a little more, and he talks about how he's had some, you know, some recovery in the 12 steps. And uh, so I'm going to just kind of read the last uh, two, uh, two paragraphs. In the past six months of my own sobriety, I worked hard with many alcoholics. Not one responded, yet this work kept me sober. It wasn't a question of those alcoholics giving anything to me. My stability came out of me trying to give, not out of demanding that I receive. Thus, I think it can work with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependency and consistent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands, then we can be set free to live in love. We may then be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at death. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation or grandiosity or depression. I have been given a quiet place in the bright sunshine. And that changed my life. And what I began to do is I began to look at some of the things that I was dependent on. And I began to see that those dependencies for me were my character defects. I had so many dependencies on what you thought of me. I, am, I, was, I, I remember Albert Myers, and I don't know if any of you remember Albert, but he was a beautiful, beautiful man. <clears throat> and Albert used to say, I'm addicted to approval. And I was addicted to approval. I wanted you to love me at all cost. I, would, I sold my soul for three years in Alcoholics Anonymous because I believed if you would just love me enough, I'd be okay. And I hit a bottom in this program behind sex and relationships that almost took me because I desperately wanted you to love me, and I would have paid for that with anything. See, the reality is, is that the only person or the only entity or whatever you want to call it for you, it's God as I understand him, and God for me, the only barometer that I need is that if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then everything else will fall into place. 
And I've been very blessed in that, for me, my first AA sponsor was a Monsignor priest. He had left the priesthood, but he was a priest. And he shared with me about being a priest that he had played God in his lives and other lives, and that he was not a religious man. He was an egotistical man. And he gave me all of this beautiful stuff, and he's tried to help me. My AA sponsor today is probably, she not probably, she's the finest woman I know. She has a relationship with God that I, I treasure her relationship with God. And she directs me in that direction. And when I call Dottie for advice, and I've learned to do that with the women I sponsor, she'll say, let's pray about it, then let's talk about it, and maybe we'll come to a decision. And I love it that way, because then just maybe some of the things we're going to do is going to be God's will instead of our will. And because I know, it's, it says it all over the book, if I'm doing God's will is when I'm going to be the happiest. And one of the things, and I'm going to be talking about this uh, as we go through. I've got notes here, so I'm sorry. This is I usually talk from the heart, but when I do this workshop, um, I don't talk from the heart. I talk from notes and, uh, <laughs> and talk from the heart. I do both. But there's two things I want to read that I want to tell you that's in the 12 and 12. Now, there's a lot of people who I don't use the 12 and 12 all the time, but I definitely use it as a tool for the big book. And I believe that, for me, I believe that Bill had a lot of insight the longer he was sober. <clears throat> and this one is one that is in, uh, is in Step 10 and the 12 and 12. When a drunk has a terrific hangover because he drank heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there is another kind of hangover, which we will all experience whether we are drinking or not. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday's and sometime today's excesses of negative emotion, anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. It requires an admission and corrections of errors, of errors now. Now, I don't know about any of you, or when's the last time you had an emotional hangover, but I'll tell you, you got a headache, you're sick, you can't move. It's just as bad as one of them old bad. And listen, I've heard people come to AA and say they didn't have hangovers. Well, my friends, I had hangovers. I had bad, bad hangovers. And I know, and I can have an emotional hangover today that was ever bit as bad as those hangovers I had then. And what it did is it was, it's, it said here, Today's excesses of negative emotion, anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. So what I did for this workshop is I took my character defects, the ones that plague me, and I'm going to share those with you. And what I did, and it requires an admission and a correction of errors. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the negative emotion, and I'm going to give you 
the solution. Because you see, our book has all the solutions. We have the solution. The other one that I want to read is also in step 10. Amazing. Step 10. That's where we take an inventory every day and find out what's wrong with me today and make immediate corrections. <coughs> make amends immediately. Not a week from now, but immediately. It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. So I don't have to go looking to you. If I got that icky feeling that's going on, I got that tightness in my chest, everybody know the physical feelings of all that negative emotion, headache, pains in the chest, throbbing temples, butterflies in the stomach, neck and shoulder ache, the whole thing. It is a, it is a, it, it shows up physically. It shows up physically. I don't need to go see if it's my boss or if it's my husband or if it's some whatever. The problem is me. I'm the problem. Even if it's only my reaction to you. And one of the things that I, I'm going to say here, and I hope I don't really hurt a lot of people's feelings, but I work with a lot of people who have had a lot, a lot, a lot of childhood trauma. And uh, I personally, we've all had it, but I haven't had some of the severe stuff that so many people have. And I could say, well, you know, I don't understand, and that's true. And I sponsor a lot of women. And in doing so, I have a lot of women that I can hook up with each other that have had similar experiences. Because I believe what Clancy said here today. I believe that alcoholics need to share with alcoholics. I think that's how we get well. That's the magic of this program, is one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. I also feel like that it also helps. You know, the book tells me that I can't, I can't take anybody where I haven't been. This is sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And if it's not my experience, I can't share it. But what I can do is I'm blessed enough to have somebody I sponsor who can share that experience. And what I've learned through the years is that some people have had horrendous trauma. If you are sitting in a seat today, it is my experience, and you're 30 years old or older, and you're still smarting from that, there's some work that needs to be done. There's lots of work that needs to be done. Those, as a child, you had no part in it. None. But if you still carry all the results of that, that is your part. If I'm angry for something my dad did years ago, and I'm still smarting from it, then that's my because I have the tools in which to get help. And the book tells us, avail yourself to these people. Get help. 
get help. It is amazing how we can recover from anything because I know today that God is so big that we can recover. But what I need to do, and it's just like what Clancy said earlier today. He said, you know, I can dictate to you how to get help. And I can only dictate to you as long as you're willing to listen. When you stop listening, I can't help anymore. So I've got to, the willing person is the person who's in pain. How much pain am I in? Am I willing to get help? Am I willing to do take the necessary actions to find the solution? It's all my responsibility. I sat down one day when my sons were in their 20s. And my oldest son, to this day, has not really gotten where he needs to go because he can't, he can't admit his deal is, oh, it wasn't that bad. And as long as he can't admit it, he can't cure it. So we, I sat down one day and I said, you know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to own all your problems. All your problems have my name on it. And I'm going to own those. But let me tell you what I'm going to also tell you is all your solutions have your name. I can do nothing for your solutions. I am powerless to help you help yourself. I can be an example. I can, I can walk the 12 steps. But if you don't do the work, you don't get the results. And this, pro, this, this program is an action program. And if, if I sit in meetings trying to get better without taking actions and doing work, I, I'm not going to get any better than if I sat in a chicken coop and tried to become a chicken. <laughs> it requires work. And the best way, the very best way I know how to work is go get yourself a gaggle of sponsees. That's the way to work. You want to go crazy? Go get some sponsees. And you know what? I need to stay at least two or three steps ahead of them. So that means i got to stay on my toes. Stay busy. Take people through the book. You want to learn the book? You want to know about the book? You want to know about the steps? Take a newcomer through them. That's a way to do it. I'm one of these kind of people. Get those 12 steps done really quick. Just take somebody right on through those 12 steps. Get them working with others because that's the magic. And then take them back through the book. But let's get through the steps so you can get working with them. Bill took them in Towns Hospital in a few hours. Read Earl Treat's story. Dr. Bob would take people through the steps in an afternoon in his office. And we sit around here waiting to do a four-step or take a step a year <laughs> and wonder why nothing happens. <laughs> Just, you know, do the work. Get busy. Into action. And when your sponsor tells you to do all this silly stuff and it just seems like silly BS, do it anyway. 
I promise you it works. I never had figured out why mopping floors, making coffee, and cleaning coffee cups and emptying ashtrays was going to do for my sobriety, but I guarantee you it worked. I don't know how it worked, but it worked. So, and I just believe, and let's just get busy in the program and do the deal and go help another alcoholic. I feel better when I'm helping you. And you know, I grew up in that Baptist church that I wanted to criticize and condemn and say all kinds of things about. But you know, the truth is, they told me, whatever you sow, so shall you reap. And you know, I waited and waited and waited for, just stood there waiting for you to give me sobriety, give me happiness. And it wasn't until I quit depending on you to do it and I reached out and started helping you. And it wasn't until I gave it away that I got it. And that's the paradox of this program. That's the paradox. And you know what? It's the paradox of all spiritual principles. I don't care what that spiritual principle is. That's it. Reach out and help another person. Okay, I'm going to start with anger. (laughs) I look like such a nice girl, don't I? A deadly poison. And I kind of had fun writing this stuff, okay? And I'm, I'm not a writer, Dick. But I had a lot of fun with it because uh, I just like to have fun. And, uh, and I believe that, you know, that's the thing I love. I, when I picked up the family afterwards, I, you know, that was, gonna, that was a scary chapter for me because uh, I'm, an abuse, I'm an abusive mother. And that was a scary chapter for me. And uh, so... But I love, I said, all the good stuff's there. We absolutely insist on being happy, joyous, and free. And one of the things I love to do is have a lot of fun. Because I can tell you, if AA had not been fun, I couldn't stay. I couldn't. Look what we're doing this weekend. We're learning, but we're having fun. How many lies have you told in the hospitality room? Hey, fun? Oh, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. You know, and you said, make amends later, you know. <laughs> just have fun. Because we get together and we just have fun. So, you know, so when I read this stuff, just, just know I'm a little bit of a wackadoo. <laughs> Anger. A deadly poison to sanity and serenity. A special punch to those who want to be God in their own lives. How many times I've used my voice... And I got to tell you what Deborah said yesterday. We were, uh, Dick took us to the shopping center and it was pouring rain. And the hotel said that they would send us a shuttle to pick us up at the shopping center. But then they called back and said they weren't. So I called Dick and he said he'd come get us. But just about that time when I was on the phone, I saw this taxi go by. And I went running out there screaming, taxi, taxi. And Deborah said, that guy can't hear you. And pretty soon he turned around and she says, why did I think that he couldn't hear that mouth? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's just like, woo. So I would use my voice to over, to over talk you. And I would use whatever personality I had to convince you. And if that wasn't enough, I would hurt you. And especially, I did that to my children because they were smaller than me. 
so I would physically hurt them because they made me so angry, because I had no patience and tolerance. None. Its impact succeeds in obliterating reason and self-control. Now, I don't know when's the last time maybe you have come from families with a mom like me, seen a crazy person out of control, screaming their head off, floundering around, slapping at things, just being a, a crazy person. One can enjoy being a human hurricane while plunged into the depths of, emo of this emotional intoxicant. Sometimes the debris left after the storm is staggering. One of the things that I believe, and I see this a lot with women I work with, and I say, if you hit him or if he hits you, that's not love. That is not love. That is control and wanting your own way. I know I've been there. Anger, I can feel it all over me. I can feel it when it's bubbling up. Get to know yourself. Get into inventory. Because these are the character defects. This is six and seven. Get into the inventory and know yourself. Because that's what it's for. So that I can get acquainted with me. And find out who I really am. And I'm here to tell you, I didn't like what I saw. You may not have that same result when you do your fourth and fifth step. I didn't like who I saw. I didn't like the person who was on that paper. And I didn't want to be that person any longer. So I needed a solution because I was an angry woman. But also, I was a very manipulative, big, fat liar. Because what I would do is I would be very kind to you. And I would take all my anger and rage out on my two little boys. But for the rest of the world, I looked so nice. And I had to get in touch with that person and face her and look at her. If I was going to make any changes in my life, I had to take an honest look at myself. The solution if just one whiff of anger sets up the compulsion to act on it, practice total abstinence. So you say, I'm powerless over my anger? Maybe. Try prayer. You know that you're angry? Know, this, know what's wrong with you? And then, bend, then I bended my knees and did the seven-step prayer. I know I'm angry. I look on page 91 of the 12 and 12. Restraint of pen and tongue. Don't say it. Leave the room. Keep your mouth shut. My sponsor said put cotton in your mouth and walk around with them. Maybe that'll keep you quiet. <laughs> if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. And that's on page 66 in the big book. I've got to find a way to diffuse this anger. And that doesn't mean I stuff anger. Because Dottie says, whatever goes down has got to come up. 
And it's going to come up like I don't want it to come up. It's going to come out sideways. And I don't want it to come out like that. So what do I need to do? What solution do I need to have for this anger? I need to do a tenth step immediately, and if really necessary, another fourth step. And put down those resentments. What am I angry at? Why am I angry? I get a whole vomit column. You know, why am I angry? What does it affect? What was my mistake? And if I do that, what happens is, is I get to diffuse the anger. Remember, love and tolerance is our code. Should the compulsion to get the upper hand, third and fifth step it when sanity has returned. Pray, pray, pray. Personally, for me, if I get in a pinch, I may have to say a prayer that I don't mean, that I can't feel, so what I do is I say the third and seventh step prayers. And if I say those a few times, pretty soon I begin to feel the Spirit move through me again. Strength to resist taking the first drink of anger comes from the use of the 12 steps, slogans, and willingness to assume responsibility for one's own conduct. The devil did not make me do it. <laughs> I made me do it. And as soon as I assume that responsibility, I've got a shot at being happy in this lifetime. As soon as I realize that you, it, whatever, is not my problem. My problem is my reaction to you, the situation, and it. And when I realize that, I've got a shot at being happy because it does not give me peace to turn around and blame you for what's wrong with me. It doesn't. I may think it does, but it doesn't. And you know, the big book says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, my friend, that's really true, but it's really apt to piss you off first. <laughs> Intolerance, an emotional, emotional inebriate which fouls up 12-step work. It succeeds in blocking awareness of what has been shared with one in the program. It causes emotional bias and prejudice. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. That's page 103 in the big book. You know what? A drunk walks in our AA meeting. You know how many people are intolerant of a drunk coming to Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> I don't know about you, but the last time I looked, it was Alcoholics Anonymous and drunks walk in. And you know, some people, and they're just huffing and puffing all over the place. I take it as my responsibility, I hope you'll do the same in your group, that if a drunk comes in to get up and go and sit and talk in another room 
with that drawing and sit down there just like Bill did with Bob and talk alcoholic to alcoholic. That's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. The magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. Solution. Daily doses of live and let live plus an open mind. Okay, are you intolerant? Are you intolerant about certain sexes in your group? I mean, do you have a little problem with transvestites or whatever? You know what? I'm sure that, you know, alcoholic, alcoholism is an equal opportunity illness. It can take a bum from the ghetto of Harlem to a president's wife. It is an equal opportunity illness, and any intolerance on my part might repel that alcoholic from getting sober. It is my responsibility. Were you in Toronto in, 19, in uh, 2005? The, the responsibility statement was the theme of the conference. It's whenever an alcoholic reaches out the hand for help, I want the hand of AA to always be there, and for that I am responsible. It doesn't matter who or what you are. I need to be tolerant. Begin with steps six and seven. Love and tolerance is our code. The prayer of St. Francis. We can also begin with some self-compassion. You know what? If I am mad with me, the first person I need to look at is me. If you are making me angry and intolerant, I'm probably doing something that's intolerant. Because one of the things I learned early on in sobriety, kind of like the first little saying was, if you spot it, you got it. <laughs> so more than likely, you know, it's something that I have. <clears throat> and we need to take a tenth step and look at my intolerance. But I also love that uh, in step 10 it says on um, page 86 and step 11, they kind of run together. You notice that in the big book, they kind of overlap. It says we must be careful not to drift into remorse and morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. You know, so I could go in there and say, oh, I was so wrong, I did it so terrible, I'm not going to help them in, and you know, I could just go on and on and on, and I'm not going to be any use at all. I can take a look at what I've done, see what I've done, take action to change it, which is start just saying, okay, you did that. Now do better next time. The emotional identification of self enables you to feel with others. Learn to distinguish between a person and his behavior and detach from the problem, but not the person. Isn't that what we all wanted everybody to do with us? Self-pity. Anybody got any problems with self-pity? <laughs> Okay, I'm going to perform for y'all a little bit. One sip of this fairly slow-acting emotional intoxicant can lead to a distorted perception. Giant mountains mushroom out of little tiny molehills. 
Problems are magnified and calamities loom on all sides. The drunkenness progress to the the drunkenness progresses to the crying stage. And the dialogue runs. And I'm telling you, this is the absolute truth. This is me. Nobody loves me. <laughs> Nobody appreciates me. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody recognizes how hard I try. (laughs) Everybody is against me. I can't do anything right. I might as well be dead. Now, as silly as that sounds, those are my words. I can remember and being in so much self-pity. Dave and I had been married. I was about five years sober. Dave and I had been married about two years. And this didn't change overnight. But it's as vivid today as it was then. And I was sitting in bed, and we were doing our daily reading and all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, I just said, when I die, would you please bury me in Texas? <laughs> I was living in California, in Santa Monica. And see, when you're in that state of nothing's enough, in that spiritual bankruptcy, nothing's enough. And all I could think about was Texas, hot mosquitoes, bugs. I mean, you know, I love Texas, but that's the reality of Texas. I was just there last weekend. I got so many chigger bites, I can't always sit in a chair and it's just so bad. <laughs> so, you know, it's just that, it's just that, that self-pity. Just, and you know, we just can get so deep in it. <clears throat> Set to a mournful tune, these lines played over and over in a half-dark, gloomy, unswept mental hangout. At the center of self-pity is a half-grown kid having a slobbering, blubbering temper fit at God's self, circumstances, and people. As long as we keep the drunken tears flowing, he does not have to live and go out into the light. And I can tell you right now, I can go there in this program 30 years sober in a nanosecond. I am grateful that I have a husband who loves me, I have sponsees who love me. I have a sponsor who keeps a short leash on me. When that happens, they tell me so. You know, it sounds to me like you might have a little self-pity going on there, Paula. (laughs) So you can start to snip out of it. Now, years ago, that would really hurt my feelings. Today, I'm grateful for it. And as Bill sees it, self-pity is one of the most unhappy and consuming defects that we know. It is a bar to all spiritual progress and can cut off effective communication with our fellows because of its inordinate demands for attention and sympathy. It is a modeling form of martyrdom which we can ill afford. You want to die fast? Try with self-pity. Solutions, step six and seven, 11th step prayer. We ask God in the big book, not the 12 and 12. 
We ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that we be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Avoid, then, the deliberate manufacturer of misery, but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotency. One of the things that I've learned is that in the 30 years that I've been sober, life's been in session. Life's been going on, and things have happened. And uh, everything that Dave and I or myself have been through has been an opportunity to grow. And I can see in hindsight, it's always 2020. And I can see in hindsight how that particular experience has made me the woman I am today. And most of the time, not always, but most of the time, I get up and I'm pretty happy with the person I look at. Even though she's got a lot of wrinkles and she's got white hair, I'm pretty happy with my soul. And that has been because of you and because of this program. That I can feel like that when I used to could not stand the sight of myself. Hourly doses of daily gratitude and appreciation of God's grace. You know, somebody calls me up in self-pity, got a little whining going on, and I just say, okay, honey, let's just make a gratitude list. And you know, that sounds so elementary. It worked then, it works now. I do very, I do things hardly different at all than I did when I was 30 days sober. I read something in the morning, I talk to people on the phone, I'm taking the same actions that I take, that I take over and over day after day, year after year. Continue to take those actions. A gratitude list works. Repetition, the book says, strengthens and confirms, and faith then comes natural. Stop hanging out in mental dumps. You know it's going to be a bad place to go? Don't go. Stop keeping company with bad companions, resentment, fear, and selfishness. You know, we are the kind of people that nurture those things. We feed them and help them grow. Don't flirt with self-justification and self-righteousness, which will sweet-talk you into a diet. Total abstinence is hardly possible unless the self-pity trips are replaced with being other-centered. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that we are to have constant thoughts of others. Now, I don't know about you, but my AA sponsor asked me, what is it about constant you don't understand? <laughs> and she, she tells me, she says, Polly, you don't think well of yourself, honey, but you think only of yourself. <laughs> And the sooner you think about others, the better you'll feel. Because when I'm thinking about me, I am never, ever going to measure up to what I think I ought to be. I'm never going to be enough in this, my own eyes. So if I'll keep my eyes and try to help you, 
It is amazing what happens for me. Resentment. An emotional intoxicant to steal with character defects. Guaranteed to impede progress in steps 3 and 11. Drinking of resentment poisons spiritual progress. Often leads to emotional enslavement to the hated people and things. An effective way to stay drunk on resentment is to bar hop from anger to self-pity to intolerance to jealousy to fear, then home to an unbelievable hangover and depression. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically sick, we have been spiritually sick. When this malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So what that tells me, that's on page 64 in the big book, but that tells me is this is a spiritual program. And if I take care of my spirit, if I take care of the spiritual illness, then the mental and physical will straighten out. Harboring resentment is infinitely grave That's a huge word that Bill uses. For then we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And that's in as Bill sees it. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. And the last time I looked up grave, it's the same as dead. That's where, that's the grave. That's what resentment does to folks like you and me. Solution, the four-step prayer. We ask God to help show us the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Steps four and five. That Oh, that terrible fourth step. And it's not really the fourth step that really gives me all the problem. It's the fifth step. But I'm going to have to go tell somebody who I really, really am. And one of the things that, you know, it says, admit to God, to myself, and to another human being. You always hear this, well, God knows, and And, you know, God knows I really don't have to tell somebody else. One of the things that's so important for an alcoholic like me is I need to take every opportunity to practice whatever I can practice to stay humble. And a fifth step is what keeps me humble. Because when I have to tell you who I am, that's really painful. Because, see, I want you to think that I'm better than I am, or I'm better than I am. I'm always wanting something. I just, you know, it's it's like we, you know, the book talks about being one among many. Just being one among many. Just being a person in AA. <clears throat> Be sure to put it down on paper, and in the fourth column, looking at our mistakes is a must. Steps 10, 11, and 12, helping others, can get us out of ourselves long enough for God to get in there and remove the resentment. 
go help. It, it's constant. It's all the way through the book. It's the thing that saved Bill in emotional sobriety, constantly helping others. When all else fails, go work with another alcoholic. And that's what he says, the part I didn't read. When all else fails, go work with another alcoholic. Jealousy. I had a lot of problems with jealousy. Uh, when I got married, I thought Dave was just about the cutest thing I ever walked on the earth. And, uh, and I had a lot of problems with that because uh, I sponsored a lot of gorgeous women. And they were all younger than me, and they were all thinner than me, which was worse. And uh, those of you who know my day know he loves women. And he loved them back then. And uh, I don't worry so much anymore because he's old. <laughs> so this one's kind of taking care of itself a little bit. But I had a lot of problems because what happened was is I was so insecure with myself. And what, that was when I began, when jealousy nearly ate my lunch, is when I learned that the only relationship I need to pay any attention to is my relationship with God, because that's the one that's out of whack. Keep it always in sight that we are dealing with the most terrible human emotion, jealousy. That's page 82 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Try looking around. How many times do you turn on the TV and somebody just got their head blown off because there was somebody was jealous? Jealousy is absolutely the worst human emotion because that tells me as I look up at God and say, thank you, but everything you give me, I don't want. It is absolutely turning my back. There's no gratitude. There's nothing but a soul-eating character defect. The greatest enemies of us alcoholics are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. That's in the big book, page 145. Jealousy is a powerful concoction of resentment, fear, self-pity, low self-esteem, and insecurity. What's really wrong? I don't feel like I'm enough. I feel like God makes junk. God doesn't make junk. Drinking freely and often from jealousy allows one to lose self-control. The mental blend diminishes peace of mind, dangerously threatens faith and trust in self and others. Jealousy brought into the program hurts the group, unity, and fellowship. How many times have you seen a group have problems because another member was jealous of a person in the group? And they spread awful lies and terrible criticism because of jealousy. Can destroy an AA group. Can absolutely destroy an AA group. Solution. Recovery is possible through daily attention to spiritual needs. What's wrong with me is my relationship with God. Humility daily injected disperses the residual effects of jealousy. A step four and a step five reveals the exact nature. Clancy was talking about that today. It's the exact nature. My nature 
as an individual is to be depressed. Because of this program, I have been privileged to live in an altered state of being and be sober and not depressed for a lot of days. And that's a miracle. Because I've been willing to look at the exact nature of one's compulsion to this green-eyed monster or any other character defect. Steps six and seven also route the, this insidious mind bender. Write it down. Talk to it one-to-one. -one. And, you know, one of the things that I'd like to say is, I, I have this thing, and I may be, you know, one of these people that um, you don't pay any attention to. But one of the things that I believe is, is that meetings are where we bring the solution. And if you're walking into a meeting and you're dumping all your stuff, it's great. But I hope when you talk about it, you have a solution. This is what happened. This is what I did. Because one of the things that I really believe is take the solution to the meeting and the mess to your sponsor. If ever I see someone coming to meetings, sharing like that, you know, I can just smugly sit back and say, no sponsor. <laughs> so smart. Dishonesty, dishonesty and self-deception. I can lie to myself better than I lie to you. I can believe. I mean, I have told lies and I got into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and what happened was, is I found out they were lies, but I had begun to believe them. I believed them. I can, you know, we always say you can't, you know, you can't con a con or all that kind of stuff. I am so able to be con. I am so able to be con. And I am a con. So what I, I'm, I'm self-deception. I mean, I'm, I have self-deception. I'm dishonest. And I want to tell you something. It's really hard, but this is the absolute truth. I am 30 years sober. And Dave and I go to this conference in the desert every year called the Desert Powwow. We love it. In fact, it's the first time I heard Clancy do the talk he did it. So what I, I'm, I'm self-deception. I mean, I'm, I have self-deception. I'm dishonest. And I want to tell you something. It's really hard, but this is the absolute truth. I am 30 years sober. And Dave and I go to this conference in the desert every year called the Desert Powwow. We love it. In fact, it's the first time I heard Clancy do the talk he did at 1 o'clock. And... I, Dave and I do the hospital, one of the hospitality rooms there, and, and we love it. We've been on the committee for 13 years. We love it. And I was doing it this year, and the uh, how you know the people brought up all the stuff that we needed, and they had some really great trays. They were about this big, and they were white. And I looked at those trays, and I said, they have no idea we have these trays. They have no idea we have these trays. I could really use those trays. I took those trays, took them to my room, was trying to find a way to hide them in my suitcase. When it hit me, I can't steal these. I, this is stealing. 
till I, you know, kind of creeped and looked around if anybody's there so I could run them back into the other way. <laughs> 30 years sober. <laughs> keep talking about stuff like that. I don't like to tell you that kind of stuff. I want you to think that, you know, uh, I am have arrived. I am now, you know, I've got it now. I'm 30 years sober. I have it. You know, I'm still an alcoholic. I am still an alcoholic. And I've got the disease of alcoholism real bad. And if I don't treat it, all I get, the book tells me, all I get is a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual condition for that day. And that's as sober as I get to get. That's it. So I better, and you know, I got sober in Texas with these old tough rednecks. And this guy said to me one day, he says, you cannot live today's recovery on yesterday's sobriety. I got to do it today. I got to do today what I did yesterday. And I do it day after day after day. Criticism. Oh, I love this one. I'm telling you this for your own good. <laughs> There is no such thing as constructive criticism. <laughs> One of the things that I love about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is I share my experience, strength, and hope. When I am criticized and it hurts to the bone, it's because it was given to me to hurt to the bone. What happens is, is when I try to do something, I try to preference it with, if this were my situation or if this were my problem, I believe I would take this action. I don't, I have had people criticize me and I tell you, it didn't feel like it was for my own good. And I know the difference. Because I've had people tell me the truth. And I can remember uh, when Frank told me when I was very newly sober. He says, you can tell anybody the truth as long as you deliver it with love. And believe me, when somebody loves me and tells me the truth, no matter how much that hurts, I know it. I know the difference. We are very the book tells, says that we are people who are just too sensitive. We know. How, do I, how does an alcoholic, totally out of his mind, doesn't even know what county or what state he's in, and maybe laying in a hospital bed, and some nurse look down on him and say, you know, take it easy, I know how you feel. And that alcoholic can look up and say, you don't have a clue. So watch the criticism. The only reason I criticize you is so I'll look better. That's it. 
It makes me feel smug. The other is gossip. I can tell you right now, there's hardly anything more fun than gossip. It does. You can get stoned on it. You know, start gossiping and talking about people. It's fun. There is nothing that is worse for the human soul and for anybody else than gossip. And the best way to find out about that is to be the gossip E instead of the gossip R. And I have been the blunt of somebody's gossip. And I can assure you it's not fun. It has absolutely destroyed, destroyed me. But, I, but yet, and I believe, what goes around comes around. And today I am ever so careful because if I can talk about you, I can talk about anybody. And when somebody sits down to talk with me and they start gossiping, I know that person, if they're gossiping about someone else, the next person they're going to gossip about is me. So how do I stop it? Don't participate. As fun as it is, and it is fun, don't participate in the gossip. Fear. Nothing is more self-centered than fear. This short word somehow touches every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classified with stealing. It causes more trouble. And that's in the big book, 67 and 68. Fear paralyzes me from doing anything. I'm watching my precious 47-year-old son who is so, he's so smart and he's so talented, but he's so afraid. And he doesn't have this program. And he's so afraid to step out because of that fear, he's so afraid of failure. And that's what I was always afraid of. I didn't go to school. Son was afraid I'd fail. So instead of going, because I knew I couldn't do it, I didn't even try. Absolutely driven by a hundred forms of fear. Solution. Walking through fear is exercising faith. Now, I hear in Alcoholics Anonymous and other places, but mostly in AA because my whole life is in, a, is in Alcoholics Anonymous, and especially now that I'm retired, that you can't have fear and faith at the same time. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And the way I understand the book, I don't believe the book does either. It says the verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith need courage. And my understanding is, is you don't need courage unless you are afraid. So if I am afraid, one of the things that is what I'm doing right now, I was the kid. I have no training, no nothing to do what I've done. This is God's grace in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a kid in school who would fail before I would stand up and give a book report. 
Too scared to stand up in front of people. Too much false ego, whatever that is. Just too much self-conscious. Just too much about me. It's all about me. I didn't. Ha- I couldn't let that all go. And people said in AA, you don't say no to an AA request. And you just do it, and you do it, and every time you do it, it gets a little bit easier, and a little bit easier, and a little bit easier. One of the things that I love is Earl. Is Earl here? He's going to speak for us tomorrow. He was in a plane. Every time today he has to exercise courage to get on an airplane. But he gets on an airplane. He exercises faith. So what I need to learn to do is exercise faith. Just do it. Just do it. Ask God to help me to just do it. The fear prayer on 68 says, We ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us to be. Then it says, At once we commence to outgrow fear. We commence to outgrow fear. I can tell you a lot of things in my life I'm still commencing. There's still some commencing. The big book says on 86, after making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. And see, that's what this is. If this continues for a lifetime, this is a journey. I finally know there's no destination. Maybe the destination is six foot under and a little dirt on top. Maybe that's the destination. But this is a journey. It is a journey. And what I have to remember is that I am on this journey and I ask for help and I'm going to make mistakes. And one of the things I also love is I heard in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous by some old timer, and he said, if you didn't make any mistakes today, you're not doing enough. You know, we, you know, you're doing enough, you're going to make some mistakes. It's, that's just the, you know, that's just the way, law of relativity, it's going to happen. So what I have to do is just be willing, when I make a mistake, be willing to own that mistake, take a look at it, take some corrective action, and move on. Blame. Anybody ride the blame train? Not my fault. It's your fault. You want to stay a victim all your life? Stay blaming other people. It's an intoxicant. Watch people. Sometimes I see people, and I'm not putting down therapy because all therapy is not this way. Sometimes I see people come out of therapy, and I just think, oh, my God. And they want to assign blame to their parents and assign this and assign that. And uh, that, that is not helping. That keeps us sick. As long as we blame other people for what's wrong with us, I mean, I don't have a shot to ever get better because if I blame you for what's wrong with me, the only way I'm going to get better is if you change. <laughs> That's it. If I own responsibility 
for what's wrong with me, I got a shot. Because I've got the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts of recovery. I've got this fabulous fellowship. And I've got a loving God. And I've got, and I know how to do service. And I can have a shot at getting better. But as long as it's not my fault, I'm stuck. You ever seen somebody sit in your meeting and they're stuck? Just stuck. And you just want to help pry them open and say, you know, what is it that you're not letting go of about yourself? Well, my mother. Well, it's your mother's been dead 20 years. <laughs> what about you today? My dad. My older brother. All of this is true. But until you start to find some solutions for yourself, we never get better. It does no good. Our defects just continue to grow. The big book says on page 62, so our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. I'm the problem. I'd love to make it your problem. I'd love to be off the hook. I really don't like humiliation to learn a little humility. I just don't like humiliation. But I'm just the kind of person that doesn't seem to get it any other way than to humiliate myself because of my character defect. The only way I know to keep the blame away is to continue on steps four and five and steps ten and to ask God to direct my thinking and actions for this day. I just get up every morning and say the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and the tenth step prayer. And that tenth step prayer is God direct my actions and thinking today and let me be useful to someone. And if I do that, most of the time I have a really good day. Okay. This is going to be the why am I going to talk for two hours? I'm going to talk for a little over an hour and a half because I'm on the last one. And I save the, the worst for last. <laughs> Depression. A fearsome emotional downer. Depression plunges one into abyss of remorse, regret, and rejection. I don't know when's the last time you've been around somebody who's depressed or if you sponsor someone who's depressed. But a person who is in a depression cannot feel that you are trying to help them. Let me just tell you they cannot feel. No matter what you do, they can't feel it. And it's very, very frustrating to try to work with depression. Now, I have it, and, you know, it just seems to be my plot in life that I keep getting women who have it. <laughs> you know, this whole thing, we attract what we are. And I have had to work with a lot of women who are depressed. And I know there's no point in trying to let them know how much I love them 
or any of that because they can't hear me. And if you are, have a loved one or yourself and you're trying, you can't feel it. You're just, it is literally what the book says. We are cut off from the sunshine of the spirit. We're cut off and we can't feel it. What we can do as a solution is to start taking some actions. You have someone, I'm just going to share what has been done for me and what I do for other people. You're sponsoring someone who's depressed. Take little steps. Wake up. Get a cup of coffee. Go take a shower. Go for a walk. Call somebody and say, sweetheart, I know the phone weighs 200 pounds, but pick it up and call somebody. Take these little actions because depression requires action. If, and, you know, they'll say, oh, I can't, I don't feel like, yes, you can, yes, you can. Just get up and take a shower and then call me. Patience and tolerance is our code. I have had to exercise a lot of patience with women I sponsor, but thank you, God, that someone did it for me. They exercised a lot of patience. And if you don't have the patience and you can't do it, please let that person go to somebody else. Get someone else to help you. Because it feels intolerable. I can get so angry trying to sponsor someone who's depressed. You know how that rage just wants to start building in you? Because they make me angry. You know, you try to help them. I can't do it. I mean, it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And I try to remember Chuck Chamberlain's words when he used to say, everybody's doing the best they can. Everybody's doing the best they can. And I'm, I, I know I need to learn tolerance because I'm very intolerant. And I have learned patience and tolerance. I also believe, and this is the thing that usually once you can get a person up and get them moving and get them taking a few actions and get a little few endorphins popping, you know, moving, then you can say, get to a meeting, you know, sit down and listen. But the reality is, is when the writing starts, we must see that depression is the highest form of self-centeredness. Because I am in this state, because the only person I'm thinking of is me. Nobody loves me. It's self-pity with an extra wind on that. <laughs> I'm not thinking of anybody but myself. That's all. And what happens is, is that it is so hard to be around people who are depressed. It takes every ounce I have. And sometimes I have to do it in little doses. I'm working with a woman right now 
who has severe depression, and it's really hard. And uh, I do not, I just don't want anybody even here, I'm so glad Clancy did the medicine thing, I don't want anybody here asking me about medication or if I talk to anybody about medication. I stand on the tenth tradition. That is an outside issue, has nothing to do with me. I am not a doctor. I do not have any kind of uh, malpractice insurance. I do not know. And what I do is that is not my business. I, that is another issue entirely. Do I sponsor women who have to be on medication? Yes. Do I take any stand with that? No. Period. So I don't go into that. I'm just telling you what works for me. And what works for me is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and Alone in Love, and a lot of service on that way. <clears throat> Bill wrote on page 8, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness and a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as it passes. A body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking, twisted, do you know we're twisted? <laughs> twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. It takes time. Patience and tolerance is our code. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is the most powerful health restorative. On my knees, up to God, asking him to direct my actions and thinking for that day, and my life just gets better. And I thank you very much for allowing me to do this. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.